0: hundreds of millions of drivers are using our technology did you ever wonder how we develop our location technology with teams around the globe the tomtom software engineering
1: podcast the magic behind the map is made by engineers of tomtom where we discuss topics on software engineering devops security data science, machine learning, open source,
0: and of course, engineering culture. My name is Felix Vase, And my name is Rijn Buve. And welcome to the magic behind the map. So Felix, in our first episode of this podcast, I thought it might be a nice idea to talk a bit about site reliability engineering. So back in 2016, I bought this book, Site Reliability Engineering from uh, a team uh, at Google that wrote that from, um, it was published by O'Reilly. And uh, now six years later, I'd really want to know, you know, what what happened to uh, SRE? And um, the funny thing is, uh, in TomTom, we have an expert site reliability engineer who's been working at eBay and, and Red Hat and actually wrote the latest book on, uh, on SRE. It's called Operating OpenShift, and it's also published by O'Reilly. And uh, his name is uh, Rick Reckow and works in TomTom, uh, Tom Berlin. Yeah. Welcome,
1: Rick. Hey, thanks for having me. Great to have you. Yeah, so um, as Ryan was mentioning, today we're going to talk about some uh, I want to learn from you, of course, from site reliability engineering's perspective. And I think also uh, another thing is really uh, infrastructure as code, of course, which is, uh, I think, a, a big theme. Um, uh, and of course, learn about Kubernetes and uh, OpenShift and how those things relate. And of course, everything about
0: your book uh, and the challenge of writing a book.
1: Um, so uh, let's let's get
0: started. Yeah, let's get into it. You have quite an interesting history of uh, things that you did uh, previously. So I understand that you worked uh, for eBay and uh, and, and Red Hat. Can you talk a bit about that?
2: Sure. Um, I guess uh, I guess it actually started kind of before that. Before I went to eBay, I actually, after school, I didn't really know what to do. And my dad used to work in, uh, in a car shop, right? So And he was like, okay, fine, then you're just going to be an apprentice here. And so I actually, after school, became uh, a car mechanic. And then at some point, I kind of figured that the computer side of things just kind of interested me. And so I started tinkering around with things and then unsuccessfully went to college uh, to study, I think, actually mechanical design and then switched to applied information technology. And then I became a working student at eBay. Um, and I spent basically all my time in the office and no time in university. And so at some point, my, my manager back then was like, hey, would you know, I like to uh, go full-time? And I'm like, yep, 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 yep. no more
0: university for me. <laughs> <laughs> so you're actually a dropout, a car mechanic yeah. dropout and, and very uh, successful in, in SRE now. I have one one question
1: of course about it because when I hear car mechanics and think about computers I was just wondering what made the spark was it tuning the engine or <laughs> um so I think
2: I think a lot of stuff became more and more technology based right like the, you had to use uh, diagnostic tools for more and more stuff and then you always had kind of like an electronic component around it and that also became more. More and more important, and so I started to kind of tinker around with the tools that they were using, like the RFID readers, and then tried to see if I could make them do different things than the way what they were intended to be doing. And then I figured that I was kind of not that bad at it, and so I thought, hey, that might
0: actually be uh, pretty interesting. So when you went to eBay, what did you do there?
2: Um, I joined eBay when they were, or that's actually the eBay Classifieds group, to be kind of more precise, and that was kind of in that time when they were moving from traditional SysAdmin doing to to more DevOps stuff. So I was coming there, the first thing that I did was migrating the monitoring system from Nagios to Sensu and kind of make everything a little more intelligent in terms of the monitoring and alerting there. And that was kinda my main focus. And that's I think some some kind of love that I kept throughout my career now. And a focus that I that I still have. So that's that. And after that, um, I think Kubernetes kinda came around the corner. So I joined a central team in the eBay classifieds group to build a central Kubernetes cluster that in hindsight I would say was not the brightest idea that we ever had, but it was kind of the early days, right? It was like yeah kubernetes is great and we're going to have one big cluster and everyone's going to share it and and it's going to be super cool and then uh, we kind of figured out how are we going to build isolation in one cluster and what happens if uh, we have noisy neighbor issues and i don't know what. so it was a bunch of very interesting challenges
0: so do you see that there's been a, a real development in that area with knowledge about kubernetes also in other companies yeah i think so i
2: think um i think The industry evolved rapidly, right? So back then, I think that was kind of 2016 or 17. A lot of people were talking about Kubernetes and how it was really cool and the capabilities that it might potentially have and advantages that it might be bringing. But then, in reality, not a lot of people were actually using it in production for production use cases. So I, I really vividly remember uh, KubeCon in, uh, in Copenhagen. And uh, someone at a talk basically asked, hey, how many of you are actually using Kubernetes in production? It was like, at most, 20% of people. And I think we've come a long way from there. Kubernetes has become kind of the, the de facto standard, I think, for current container orchestration, especially now with Mesos. Being moved to the attic. There's basically just Kubernetes and
1: Nomad. Hey, and Eric, uh, if if you uh, for listeners who are not you know really into it, could you explain to us what Kubernetes is all about and what kind of problems it solves? So
2: let's think we have an application, and in in the ancient times, our application would run on on a server, right? And then the next step was basically virtualization. So our application would run on a virtual machine on an actual piece of metal on a on a server. And then the next iteration from there, I think, would be that we would be starting to stick our application in a container so that our application, everything that it needed, and all of its dependency would be nicely packaged up and basically just be able to run everywhere. That's all fun and games. If you just have one application and one instance of it, But as soon as you want more of those, you start to have issues, right? You need multiple containers. So how do you start to keep those in order? And that's where basically container orchestration comes into play. Um, You need to manage the lifecycle of your container. Uh, What happens if you want to deploy a new version of your image? Um, How do you actually expose it? And so that's where um, Kubernetes comes in, right? So it gives you a place to run your container and also do everything in and around the, the lifecycle and, and exposing of it. I think that's that's kind of the very gist of it.
1: Rick, I'm, uh, I'm wondering, yeah, because what interests me, I think we are, we're going to dive a bit deeper into the origins of Kubernetes and, and how it relates to OpenShift, for instance. But what I uh, found very interesting was in the early days when people started using Kubernetes, you said that it was quite challenging. So so could you explain a bit on um, maybe also what side reliability engineering is about? Because I think when you have tools to do all this orchestration and kind of things, that's just part of the story, right? There's also another story which you briefly touched about on monitoring, alerting. Um, so could you explore a bit on how SRE ties into Kubernetes and what kind of challenges basically doing SRE with something like Kubernetes?
2: So I think um, SRE... Uh, has its focus on on the reliability aspect of things, right? Um, and as you said, everything else is just a tool. Kubernetes is just a tool, or your monitoring tools like Prometheus, Grafana, or in the Nagios for the for the older ones among us. Like that's just all tools, and then SRE kind of brings strategies and mindsets to that in addition. And I think the difference that many people make between DevOps, sysadmin. And then SRE stuff is like the willingness to work with software to solve issues, right? So if you have a tool like Kubernetes and you have an additional need or a specific need from it, then SREs are basically going to write software to serve that purpose. So, um, and I think that's that's kind of the, the key difference. But at heart, I think it's just people uh, in an organization with reliability at focus.
1: Hey, and uh, Rick, um, we're talking about Kubernetes, but we also have something which is called OpenShift, right? And as I understand the OpenShift is kind of a distribution on top of Kubernetes. But could you explain a bit the relation between Kubernetes and OpenShift and how they differ maybe from a philosophy point of view in, in approaching things? Yeah, um,
2: I like to I like to always kind of tell people that OpenShift is Kubernetes with stuff extra on top. Like that's kind of what I usually like to like to tell people. Like Kubernetes is at heart and at the core of OpenShift, and you can also clearly see that by the amount of contributions that Red Hat engineers make to uh, Kubernetes core, um, and also everything around that. Right, Kubernetes nowadays is so much more than just the the base tool, so to say. Like it's a whole community and, and an ecosystem. Um, there's so many special interest groups, and basically, folks from Edit are involved almost everywhere. I mean, for one, they, they're all big open source enthusiasts, I think, um, but also because it's really important to help shape kind of the foundation of OpenShift. And I think OpenShift uh, has a lot of things figured out that the average vanilla Kubernetes user still has to figure out, right? So think about authentication, uh, authorization how do you get traffic into your cluster how do you monitor things like those are those are things where openshift brings an opinion to kubernetes and then basically has that implemented already so uh, on a vanilla Kubernetes cluster, you basically have to think about all the challenges yourself. How do I uh, get traffic into my cluster? What ingress do I use? How do I set it up? How do I get it into the various namespaces? And then the same again for monitoring. What tool do I use for monitoring? So most people, I think nowadays, kind of use uh, the provincial operators. So how do I set that up properly? How do I isolate uh, my namespaces from one another again? What do I pick up? How do I have my learning rules? And so on and so forth, right? And so with OpenShift, you basically go ahead, install it, and you can start putting workload on it right away. So you have monitoring for your cluster out of the box. You have an, an ingress abstraction with the router. Uh, so I think that's uh, definitely something that is that is really, really important. And that makes OpenShift really attractive, I would say.
1: That's interesting. Yeah. Hey, and and Rick, what I, what I also found interesting is of course that cloud providers, uh, provide managed basically installations of OpenShift. eh? So on uh, AWS and on Azure and on Google, you can, I think use OpenShift managed clusters, um, and what I'm interested in is. As I hear you talking you mentioned the first step in the virtualization of machines, basically. Then we get more into the orchestration of those machines or managing workloads and, and those kind of things. And now we're actually talking much more about infrastructure. So connecting all these VMs, having networking in place, maybe load balancing or routing, which basically means uh, making an abstraction of your physical infrastructure, right? Of your network. Uh, because I think this is sometimes re- referred to as infrastructure as code, right? So that you actually treat your or describe your uh, network infrastructure much more in a way of code Uh, could you could you tell us a bit about that and what kind of benefits um, treating your infrastructure as code have for for corporations and uh, and users
2: i think infrastructure as code is really important as soon as more than one person is touching a cluster basically right so think of what you traditionally maybe were doing, right? So you have a cluster and someone goes to a UI, clicks around there to configure it, or you go to the command line and someone runs a bunch of commands, and uh, that's that's kind of how you configure a cluster. Um, And that basically just doesn't scale, right? Because the next person that comes doesn't know what kind of scripts you're running, what you clicked in the UI, whatever in the world you were doing. And it's also not reproducible in case you ever have a failure or you want to have another cluster. And so you basically go away from that and start to describe your infrastructure in any given way, right? I think uh, most commonly people are nowadays using Terraform and, and a bunch of YAML files. Um, and so that way everything is then uh, controlled the same way as any other given application right so it's checked in in your source code management system you have a good overview of what kind of changes are happening to your infrastructure you can get code reviews on changes to your infrastructure so anything becomes a lot more easy to maintain and also reproduce right so Getting a new cluster that looks exactly the same way as your first cluster is basically just changing one variable. And it's just making things a whole lot easier. Or worst case, you're on a public cloud and they have an outage in a zone. You basically change one variable for a zone, run your whatever tool you use for uh, infrastructure as code, and then you will have your cluster in your new zone. And you will basically minimize the outage time. So that's, I think, the, the beauty of it. It's got some uh, rough edges here and there, but overall, I think um, for, for most companies, it's, uh, it's a good approach. Could you name one rough edge? I think a good issue is always when you have unexpected behavior. So let's say your root disk runs full of on one of your nodes, then what do you do? So if you purely want to stick to your infrastructure as code, you basically would extend your volume, right? But then you need to be very clear on how your infrastructure as code tool behaves and what it does. Does it actually extend your root volume or is it deleting your root volume and adding a new one to your existing node? Or is it actually removing the whole node and creating a new node with a new volume? And you have data loss, right? So you better read the documentation closely before
1: you start doing stuff. What, what I liked is because I, I read something, of course, on the uh, on this topic, um, and especially on this topic of infrastructure as code, is that you still have a lot of people who, who, who have more declarative approach to basically doing a step-by-step kind of thing. But as you said, um, you know, if your infrastructure is really dynamic, things need maybe change and maybe you need to destroy also instances, right? So you need, you need to have some transitioning between configurations and, and, and knowing state of, of those things and, and, uh, which they call, I think in your space, configuration drift, (laughs) (laughs) um, uh, and, and that, is, um, that is also touching upon the the, the last deep topic I, I want to touch upon on this subject, uh, which interests really uh, is, is that uh, a big thing also is what they call immutable infrastructures to basically uh, combat uh, uh, configuration drifts. Could you explain a bit about this approach of having immutable infrastructures, uh, why it's important and how they differ maybe from uh, mutable infrastructures?
2: I think the idea was immutable infrastructures that you cannot change certain parts of your infrastructure Um, and i think it's a it's a it's a matter of of approach and how you combat the configuration drift basically right i think that's you name that it's a it's a very real issue um, especially the longer any piece of infrastructure that you have is running the bigger the likeliness of having a drift yes right but everything has has pros and cons to it. And so immutable infrastructure basically has the same idea, right? So you would say that certain pieces of your infrastructure are not to be touched and are not to be changed. But the question is always, how do you watch that? And how do you monitor that? How do you ensure that certain pieces are continuously staying immutable, especially if you're depending on someone else, like basically everyone who's on public cloud? right? So immutable always has a limit. The, the second that the cloud provider is changing something, your idea of immutable is basically gone. So in the introduction,
0: I mentioned, uh, that you recently wrote a book operating open shift published by uh, O'Reilly or to be published. Uh, uh, when, when is the book going to be available and what is it about?
2: I think the official release date is January 2nd, 2023. But that's just because I didn't submit my last chapter yet. That's <laughs> <Pess> on me. <laughs> yeah. um, so as soon as I basically submitted that, I think the release date is going to be a little earlier. So we wrote that together, Manuel Diewald and I, because we both figured that from working in in uh, the OpenShift Dedicated team, we had a lot of experience with clusters, OpenShift clusters, uh, how to maintain those issues that could happen. How potentially to make your life easier as well. And that's kind of knowledge that we wanted to share with people. And then some, some weird afternoon, I pinged Manu and I was like, Manu, you want to write a book? And he goes, What the? What do you? No, wait, no. And I'm like, No, that's <laughs> going to be fine. I pitched it to Aureli already. He's like, Did you put me as Color Thought? Yeah, 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 I did. It's fine. It's going to be fine. <laughs> like, Aureli is such a, such a big household name. I didn't really even expect them to consider it. And uh, so it was, uh, surprised when they got back and we're like hey that sounds great like we we want to do that with you um and so now we kind of split everything up so uh we we wrote the chapters 50 50 more or less and um each of us focused on on what they cared about most um so we try to help people from from small to scale is what i what i like to say so we start with the most simple implementation of uh, installing a cluster. And then how do you get from that to multiple clusters and then to actually herding a lot of clusters and the same through every uh, aspect that is interesting, right? So we have operator development, observability from just using the single built-in stack to having multiple Grafana and Prometheus instances um, deployments and so that's that's the
0: structure throughout okay and if you're a car mechanic who thinks about a software engineering career then uh, the book is certainly for you
2: (laughs) well then you can just write me an email i'll send you one for free that's fine
1: <laughs> Talking of which, I think the the book is in preview on O'Reilly, so I think we'll put up a link in the show notes where you can uh, can look uh, at the early chapters as you write them. Yeah, one 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 last final question because I think your journey was is uh, very interesting and it's also nice that you shared it with us, Rick, uh, of becoming you know uh, stepping in your father's shoes, uh, becoming a car mechanic, but making the transition towards software engineering. Also for for young engineers listening, uh, you know maybe at the start of their career, is there any words of wisdom or some things you learned which you would like to give as advice to people listening
2: i think the most important one is uh stay coachable and look after yourself i think those two together are uh what i kind of had to learn the hard way over time and uh, that's that's probably what i would give as an advice to everyone right so uh, looking after yourself is really important like you're not winning if you're working 14 hour days and, and more than everyone, like, make sure that your your physical and your mental health are in order. And like, no, one's, no one's going to be mad at you for that. And you're just going to feel better. And if that's what you care about, you're also going to deliver better work at the end of the day. And staying coachable is the other one. Um, even if you have experience, if you have opinions on certain things, make sure that you always listen to what the others have to say because chances are they will be able to bring something to the table that you can learn from. Um, So yeah, that's that.
1: Nice, Rick. Hey, Rick, thank you so much for sharing your story and um, uh, for being here with us um, and to all everybody who's listening. Thank you all for listening and don't forget to subscribe on engineering.tomtom.com and check out the show notes with resources and links discussed in the show and uh, we we'll see you in the next one. Yeah. yeah, see you
0: in the next episode. Bye. Bye. Thanks, Rick.